So many people over the country have asked me to write a history of Bob Jones University, why we founded this institution, uh, what the institution stands for, uh, the growth of the institution, the explanation of the growth, and a hundred and one other things. But I'm not much of a writer. So I decided that this week and probably next week I'd take the chapel hour and I'd talk to our students and faculty and friends about why we founded this school, what's the explanation of the school, how it's grown so fast, uh, what issues it has raised, and a good many other things. Now, these messages are being recorded. They're going on record in the studios. They're going to be preserved permanently. And if the Lord tarries and I have to die, it may be that someday your children uh, will sit in this auditorium and will hear these messages from this platform as you are hearing me this morning. We are recording these and preserving them and writing some history here that we want to hand down by word of mouth as far as possible uh, to those that come after us. Now, a great many people say to me, why did you found a school? You an evangelist? How did you get into an education? Well, I never intended to build any school. That was not my purpose. I, I was called of God to preach. I began preaching as a little child. I remember in southeast Alabama, as long ago as I can remember, as a little country boy, not over three or four or five years of age, I used to uh, get out and preach to the children. I remember the most embarrassing moment I think my mother ever had uh, was one time I went to church. I couldn't have been over three years old because I know where we live and I remember the occasion. Uh, there was a preacher up preaching in the pulpit in this country church on Saturday. And I stood up by my mother's side. I can see myself now. And it's my mother sitting there. And I said, let me do the preaching. <laughs> and my mother, greatly embarrassed, took me out of the church. I, I didn't see why she's so embarrassed. I, I remember when I'd get the little children to get out in the community and preach to them all the time on Sunday. I remember very distinctly one time when I was a little boy, way back yonder, just a little fella, I was out on Sunday when I had a lot of visitors in the woods with all these young boys and girls gathered around me. And I was up there preaching to them, and I saw the old folks uh, looking around, uh, eavesdropping on the service. I was naturally a timid child. Nobody realized it. But you know, most of us public, <laughs> most of us public speakers are. You know, the most timid man I ever knew in my life was Billy Sunday. Most of the men I've known, most of the evangelists I've known are naturally timid men. Uh, they, some people say temperamental, but they're timid. But I began preaching. Now, I don't know why it was when I was a child. Uh, nobody thought a little child knew what he was doing. Uh, nobody thought a child was, uh, uh, was uh, really old enough to be converted. He got to be old enough to do something terrible. But I used to pray to be saved. I remember as a little boy in the country, I'd stay awake at night and beg Jesus to save me. Now, that's strange because nobody ever said a little child could be saved. Nobody thought about a real little fella coming to Jesus. I remember one night, I couldn't sleep. I stayed awake for uh, I don't know how long, just saying, oh, Jesus, I want to be saved. Please save me. And uh, I wake my little brother up. He's, we were sleeping together, and he asked me what I was talking about. And I actually lied to him and said, you must be mistaken. I wasn't talking about anything. I didn't tell anybody. I, I, there's a little place out there in the woods, a little pine tree. But I used to go and kneel behind, hide behind a pine tree, and I was a little boy, all alone, slip out there in the woods, and get down on my knees and beg Jesus to save me. Evidently, the hand of God must have been upon me as uh, pushing me along. I don't understand how it was. And uh, I could have been converted at the age of five if, if somebody had sat down and explained it to me. I probably was saved. 
I, I think a little child that says God saves me, I, I think God saves him. Whosoever's called the name of the Lord shall be saved. But I would have had the assurance of salvation at the age of five if somebody had sat down and talked to me. But it was 11 years old before I was converted. And then I began to preach right away, a little service as best I could. I, I was literally thrust into the ministry. Somebody said, how did you get started? Did you feel any special call? I don't know. I just went at it and just kept going and going and going, so it went. So I started my ministry rather early. So when I found the school 23 years ago, I had been preaching for 27 years, a little more than 27 years when the school started. And I'd held a great many evangelistic campaigns over the country. Uh, the Lord had given me some great meetings, some of the most wonderful meetings ever conducted. He'd been, uh, it'd been my privilege to conduct. I knew all the great evangelists and was a good friend to most of them. So people say, why did you go into this business? Well, strange to say, I, I really just got thrust into the business in some strange, indescribable way. I can't tell you how it happened. I know when I decided to build a school. I know it just like it was yesterday. I was driving down the street in Kissimmee, Florida. Ms. Jones was with me. I went into a store. I said, let's go get some sandwiches. I'll get them, and, and we'll uh, eat by the roadside. Lovely day. And I went to get the sandwiches and some soda water or something. I don't remember what it was. Came out and got in the car, and I said, I'm going to build a school. I'm going to build a college. She said, are you crazy? I said, no, I, I'm going to build a school. But now, that was a sudden decision. It wasn't a sudden decision. You know, there's a sense in which all decisions are sudden. Uh, you say yes or no, you decide something. It's all done now. But there were a great many processes that led up to that decision. I, I'd, I'd been nursing a, a feeling in my heart for a long time that there ought to be a certain type of school in America that was not then in existence and is not in existence now out off, off this campus. Now, let me make that plain. I don't think we have the only school. Don't misunderstand me. Sometimes in our emphasis on the things which we stand that we have to underscore in this day and time. Uh, if we didn't underscore them, people wouldn't notice them. The purpose of this school is to underscore certain things. And while underscoring these things, there's always a temptation uh, to appear to overemphasize or reflect on some other school. That's not so at all. We think there are numbers of good schools in this country, schools that have been called by Almighty God into existence to render their special service. But the Lord called this school into existence to be different from any other school with a little different slant and a little different type emphasis. I remember when I started the school, a man, head of another institution, wrote me and said, why did you want to start another fundamental school? We've got one in this country. Why don't you get back of us? Well, it so happened that that's a good school, and we afford it, but it wasn't the type of school that somehow God led me to find. Somehow or other, it wasn't something. There was something that I felt God wanted to emphasize, something that God wanted to underscore, that you had to build a school to get the idea over. So that's what has been holding me so long. Well, I could tell you a good many things, but I was led to found a school from three experiences I had. Many of I'll tell these three incidents, and they had to do with a great many experiences. I used to go up and down this country, and I'd find students home from college when I'd be in a meeting. They'd come in and say to me, uh, I've lost my faith in school. And I'd had parents that would sob out their hearts and say, I sent my son and daughter off school, and my child came home with shattered faith. My child isn't the same anymore. And I observed that as I went around. I found broken-hearted mothers and fathers everywhere. I remember this special incident. I was down here in Georgia one time speaking. And right down in front there sat a man that had the saddest face I think I ever saw. I never saw such a man that looked like such incarnation of agony as that man. And uh, when we were through the service, 
The pastor of the church said, did you see that man sitting down in front of you? I said, yes. Do you notice his face? I said, yes. He said, he's the most wretched man I've ever known. He said, that man's had the tragedy in his life. It's just enough to break his heart. It's broke the heart of his wife. He said, here's a story. He said, he's chairman of the board of this church and one of the finest Christian men in the world. He's been a generous man. He's given money to build schools. And he made a large contribution to a certain denominational school, his own denominational school. And he said he uh, had one daughter, the apple of his eye, the pride of his life, and said she's a sweet girl. She came to Sunday school and church. She was very active, lovely, beautiful, active, sweet Christian girl. And said uh, uh, she got through high school, got ready to go off to college, and said, uh, of course, they sent them to that school. It was our school, our only denominational school that we put up the money for. And so uh, this man was very proud to send his daughter off to school. Said she came home Christmas, she didn't seem exactly the same. She came to church, but she wasn't the same. Came home next summer, uh, she was so different. And we were concerned about her, though she did come to church. The next year, uh, we watched it going on down, 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 deteriorating spiritually. When she finished college, she came home, she uh, didn't come about the church at all. Wouldn't come to services. And she'd sit on the front porch and smoke cigarettes back in those days when very few women smoked. And people would be passing by and said, you could imagine how embarrassed the father and mother were in this little town. And said, uh, they just kept on trying to help her. Said one day she's sitting out there on the front porch smoking a cigarette. And people going by the home, to, going to Sunday school. Father humiliated, mother embarrassed to death. And, and said, uh, we knew what happened to her. She lost her faith in that school she'd attended. She lost that something she had. And said her father couldn't stand her sitting there and long. He chided her for the way she was doing. He said, I'm tired of this. I embarrassed you all the time. You're college. You've lost all your spiritual life. And uh, she said, the girl looked at him just and said, you make me tired. Now, I'm tired of this small town idea. I don't believe these things anymore, not since I went to college. I lost my faith. I don't believe a word of it. I don't believe any of that old Bible stuff. I don't believe in your old time religion. I don't stand for it. I don't, I don't believe. I don't want to be talked to about it. I'm sick and disgusted and said she ran upstairs, uh, ran into a room and opened a dresser drawer and pulled the gun out and turned it to a temple and blew out her brains and said that it was the most tragic thing ever happened in this town. Now, that's one story. Here's another story. I was up in the uh, Midwest in the shadow of a great university giving a lecture sermon. And so when I was through, I walked out of the building and uh, went down the street and the fellow followed me out of the shadow of the light and out of the light into the shadow, kept walking along after me. And all at once, I stopped and looked around and said, you want to see me? And he was crying. And I took him up to my room. We sat down. It took him nearly an hour, or maybe longer, to tell the story. I'll tell you in about five minutes. He said, uh, my father died three months before I was born. Lived in a little town out in the Middle West. And he said, uh, my father had been pretty well due, but he lost all he had. And when my, I, I was born, my mother found out there's a mortgage on the home. And the mortgage was foreclosed. And my mother never had worked, and she never had a job in her life, but she got a job in the store and went to work to rear me, put me in a, brought me up a little house on a little back street, and she struggled along and went on through, and she brought me up in Sunday school and church. I was reared right, had every Christian advantage in the world. I was a mighty decent sort of a boy. He said, I won all the honors in high school. He said, never shall forget when I graduated. said, the schoolroom was full, and said, of course, the pale sand. My mother was there sitting back so happy. And he said, I got all the honors. said, uh, they piled the medals around me and the flowers. And 
And I was the most popular student in the school, the best football boy in school, the best of everything. And said, of course, Mother was happy she'd had such a hard time. And said, she sat back there and smiled at me through her tears and got through. And I, I tried to get to her, but the crowd gathered around me and the, my mother slipped out. She was a very timid woman. And I went down to the little home and she's sitting there in the chair. And she just smiled and cried. And I came in and put my medal in her lap and put the flowers around her and put my diploma in her lap. And she looked up at me and said, what are you going to do now? I said, I'm going to work. I'm going to work and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to take care of you, mother. You're never going to work anymore. And she said, no, you're going to college. Going, I can't go to college. Yes, you can too. I'm going to send you to college. You're going to send me to college. Yes, I'm going to send you. Where are you going to get the money? I have the money. You have the money. Yes, uh, when, uh, ever since I've been working, I've saved as much as a dollar a week and sometimes two dollars. And I put it in the saving bank and I've kept all this time and I got enough to send you to the leading school in this country. I, my boy never had a daddy, but I made up his mind. He's going to have as many and good advantages as anybody. And I just, I couldn't believe it, to tell you the truth. And said, uh, I was, of course, happy, but I dreaded so much the thought of a sacrifice, what she'd done for me. But said she insisted, and last fall she packed my things up and sent me off to this university. And I said, when I left home, he said, I was, there never was a girl that ever breathed any pure than I was. I was the cleanest fellow you ever knew. Had a clean mind, a clean heart. I was decent and manly. I didn't smoke. I, I of course, didn't drink. And I, I lived a decent, clean life and read my Bible every day and prayed and went to Sunday school church. And my mother packed the things and said, uh, then she went and brought her Bible and put it in the tray of the trunk. She said, now I'm putting my Bible here. Won't you take it with you and, and read it every day like you've been doing, but I'm letting you have my Bible. Said, I kissed her goodbye and came up to school, got in the dormitory and opened my trunk and took out my Bible and laid it on the table. The boys said, say, boys, come here, boys, boys, say, we got a preacher in the dormitory. Boy came, hey, say, come here, got a Bible. Said, I didn't pay much attention to it. I never been used to anything like that. You get ridicule and make fun of me. But he said, uh, Sunday, that night I got ready to go to bed. I got my Bible and read it and got out and prayed. And uh, they laughed at me, some of them, and said, Ah, you get over that. You wait to get some old prof so-and-so, he'll fix it. And said, they just kept laughing at me, kept making fun of me. Sunday morning, I packed up and went to Sunday school. I was the only one away. And I got there and said they had a little modernistic church and modernistic preacher. I didn't know much about it, because I'd never been around that sort of thing. And he said, I got after a while in the biology class. Said, you got to hand it to that fellow. Said, he's a, he's a better psychologist than he was a scientist. Then he was in biology, and he said, little by little, he uh, just began to drop doubts in my mind. Little by little, said, it's so subtle, he broke down my resistance. And after a while, I got to thinking, well, this is what the scholars say. And uh, I decided that my mother, well, she's all right, but she just doesn't know. She's good, and, and it's all right, but she just isn't up to date. And, and said, after a while, uh, the religious urge went out of me. I can't understand it, that drive in something, I lost it. And he said, I got run around with boys. And he said, I've been getting drunk. And I've run around with bad women. And he said, I, Mother must have suspected something's wrong. I've used more money and drawn on her for more money than I'm supposed to have. I had a telegram from him. She's coming tomorrow. And I can't, I can't look at her. I can't face her. And if I... If, 
If I didn't look at her, I couldn't kiss her. For I have an unspeakable disease. And I just made up my mind that in the morning I'm going uptown and buy me a gun. And I'm going to blow out my brains. He said, if it is a hell, and that's what my mother's Bible says, and the teacher says it isn't any. But if there's any hell, if there's any hell, it won't be any worse than the hell I'm in. And I, of course, got him straightened out and got him right with God. He didn't suicide as he'd planned. But, you know, as I sat there that night, I said, if there isn't any hell and God's a just God, he'll set fire to brimstone and he'll, he'll, he'll create a hell in which to damn these dirty modernistic conspirators in pulpits and schoolrooms that steal the faith out of the hearts of young people. Now, one other story. I was out in the great Northwest, spoke out in the state of Washington, when I was through an old, stooped-over, feeble preacher. I won't say what denomination he was a member. He came up the front. I didn't know he was a preacher at first, so he looked rather like the minister. He said, I want to talk to you just a minute. I said, all right. And I thought we could talk. There. He said, let me get over here against the wall where I can prop. He said, you know, I'm, a, I'm a getting rather old, you know. I get tired standing, and my knees are awfully trembly. So we backed up against the wall, and he said, I want to tell you a story. He said, uh, I came out this country many years ago. My bride and I were just married as a missionary in the Northwest. We got out here. I was loyal to my church. We didn't have any school in this country. I said, we ought to have a denominational school to educate our children. We ought to be able to have a school to send our own children to. So he said, I made up my mind that we ought to have one, and I, I started a campaign in, in our organization, our denomination, to build a school. And he said, I never had over $1,000 a year salary. They didn't pay preachers much, he said, you know. And I gave $100 a year to, uh, for a number of years to build that school, got the old bill, said, never had but one child, a boy. He said, he's a, oh, he's the sweetest boy you ever saw. We were so proud of him. We didn't know God was ever going to give us any children. And this boy was born, such a wonderful boy, so bright. Got through high school. He was head of our religious young people's organization in church. Conducted prayer meeting for me when I wasn't there. Oh, we were so proud of him. Everybody said he was such a model preacher's boy. And the time came to go off to college. Got ready to send him, and he said, I, we were so proud of him. So I can see him now. My wife and I went to the door to tell him goodbye. Kissed his mother and then kissed me and said, Dad, you won't mind if we give mother a last kiss and kissed his mother and and he picked up his grips and went down the walk and said, we cried. We didn't cry because we were sad. We were just so happy. We were so proud of our boy. We brought him up through high school clean, had him ready to go off to college. And we kissed him goodbye and sent him away. And, and, and we were so proud. We said, we've got a good college to send him to. And he said, I'm not uneasy about it. He'll be all right because we've got a good school, denominational school to take care of him. said, that night we got ready to go to bed his mother and I said, you know, it's awful lonesome without him. We got down on our knees by the bed. said, she's awfully frail. And I put my arm around her, and she leashed her little feeble arm, put around me, and we just thanked God. We said, thank you, God. We got a good place in our boy, a good denominational school. We sacrificed. We're so glad we sacrificed to build it. And we're so glad he's there, and we don't have to worry. And said, you take care of him, God. Then he got up and... Straightened up a little through his shoulders back, looked like a soldier on parade. 
Then his eyes flashed fire and he said to Joel, he said, while I was preaching around those country churches, a modernist had got in that school. He'd come in there and they didn't have the courage to put him out and I didn't know about it. And my boy liked that fellow and he liked my boy and he led my boy astray. Stole his faith. Wrecked his life. Boy finished college a drunk. He's a middle-aged man now and a miserable drunken bomb that staggers up and down the streets. And a middle-aged man, brilliantly educated, wonderful mind. And when he's sober enough to write, he writes articles to the paper and signs them atheist. Ridicules the gospel his old daddy's preached for 60 years. He's broken my heart. We're just waiting to go home. He said, I, I, I don't want to be unkind, but I can't forgive them. They should have protected the school, but they didn't do it. And they, they damned my boy, and I gave them money. Honestly gave it to them, they damned them. Now, it's stories like that I heard. Many others I could tell you, but those are three distinct stories. I heard them in different sections of America, one in Georgia, one in... Uh, the Middle West and the other way out in the Northwest. Then I saw young people that say to me, I don't believe that stuff anymore. Oh, I used to think that. That's outmoded now. This is the age of advancement and scientific discoveries. We've outgrown it. That's one side of it. That's what I dealt with. Listen, I found out another thing, and I won't have time to go into that this morning. I found out another thing, that the folks who went off to Orthodox schools, that came on believing the Bible still, that they had a technical sort of a slam. They lacked uh, fervency. They lacked a zeal. They lacked a passion. I found that there was something about so much of the, even the conservative scholarship that put out the fires that suppressed the evangelistic impulses, that even the orthodox people, so many of them went off to school, that they came back home, even some of them orthodox schools with an intellectual superiority attitude and cold hearts that the fervency was gone and they were unfriendly to evangelism. Nearly all of them were. I found that many of the theologians were unfriendly to evangelism. I found that there was something wrong and that most of the friends of evangelists were folks that hadn't been off to theological seminaries. I found that they had lost their zeal, most of them had gone. I said there's something wrong in this country. Now, if education puts out the fire and suppresses the evangelistic impulse, something wrong with it, however orthodox it may be. And if it makes atheists out of people and wrecks folks morally, they better not have it. I'd rather you'd be decent and not be able to sign your name. Scholarship's no substitute for morals and decency. Listen. Scientific laboratories and libraries and scholarships and diplomas are no, no substitute for faith. I said, there's something wrong in this country. And it just kept growing on me. Everywhere I went, I found it everywhere. Now, I said, there ought to be a school somewhere that isn't afraid of the devil. Founded by some man that's used to being kicked around and cuffed about, that knows how to take it. 
that's had to fight the bootleggers and the modernists. Somebody that doesn't mind getting a little kick. Somebody ought to start something. And it shouldn't only be a school, it should be a base of propaganda. Listen, Bob Jones University is not just a base of scholastic training. This institution is a base of propaganda for God Almighty. It's not just a place where you get your degree. It's not just a place where you learn Greek and Hebrew and philosophy and Spanish and French and German and Chinese and Russian and, and Japanese and so on. It isn't just a place where you learn to play the organ and the piano and sing, where you learn how to put on programs. It's not just that. It is that. But it's not just that. That's the reason this school's had such opposition. That's the reason the devil mounts his guns on hell's battles. That's the reason, that's the reason that even fundamental institutions in America fought us in the beginning. When we started out, even the schools that could have helped us fought us. The president of one of the schools in America that should have been our friend in those early struggling days when it didn't look like we had any friends. The president of that school tried to keep our advertisements out of Christian periodicals. The history will never be written. Nobody but God and I know all of it. My wife probably and Bob Jr. know more than anybody else except myself. But there has been opposition in the school that nobody knows anything about except the man that's talking to you. We hadn't more than started until Satan organized his reserves and brought him up to the front. This institution, this institution has lived from the day it started against the fixed bayonets and has marched against the fixed bayonets of all forces of evil. Modernists have been against us because we've insisted upon evangelistic fervor. We've had the opposition of some of the fundamentalists in this country. Because we had the types tool we had and put on the campaign we had and cover, put out the propaganda we put out, the ecclesiastical bosses of Now I want you to remember one thing that I want to climax this message with. Jesus said, Farmer planted some weakness for you. He went home and said, I've got the wheat planted, wife. Wheat's all out now. I'm tired, and I'm going to take a little sleep. I want a good night's sleep. Jesus didn't tell it this way. I'm just showing you how it worked. He said, no, my back's been hurting me all day. It's been hard work. Soil wasn't easy. I got the wheat all planted, though. It's all out. And he went to sleep. And he hadn't more than gone to sleep until an enemy of his said, He's sleeping. This is my chance. I'll give him some trouble. I'm going to sow some tares in the wheat. And the enemy went over there and sowed the tares. While he slept. Now, wait a minute. Suppose somebody had gone over there and waked the fellow up and said, Mister, get up, Mister. 
I know you're sleepy. I know you're tired. But get up. Get up. Your enemy's out trying to put in task in your wheat. Get up out of bed. Suppose the old farmer said, I'll trust him. I'm too tired to get up. Don't bother me. The farmer would have been to blame. You listen to me. You listen. I made it my business and have made it my business for about 25 years to go up and down this country from one end of America to the other and shake these sleeping saints and tell them to wake up, wake up. I saw them so in the seat. While you ecclesiastical leaders have been sleeping, why you've been lazy loafers and said everything's all right. It's our past. The enemy's been sowing the tags. And this school keeps waking them up so much it makes them a mad. They don't like to be pestered. They want to sleep. They say, let well enough alone. He's a disturber of the peace. We just can't sleep. And then somebody said, Mister, will you explain Bob Jones University to us? How do they do it? They seem to have money. Where do they get it? Sure must be some raising money man that place somewhere. Somebody said, you know, I don't understand. They don't do what the rest of them. They seem to have a little pattern on them. Why do they do it? These folks say, let us alone. But if you let me use a nice little grammar statement, we ain't going to let them alone. <laughs> We're going to keep shaking. Listen, this school isn't a means in itself. It's a means to an end. Bob Jones University is an instrument to an end. When revival breaks out on another campus, we say hallelujah. When a modernist is kicked out of some denominational school, we say, glory to God. When some man says, let's get back to God, we say, go to it, boy, go to it. That's what we've been doing. And so far, up to this point, by the grace of God, we've been saying, where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him, with him, all the way. Let's keep singing in our hearts until Jesus comes again. Our Heavenly Father, help us to be faithful and true. Help us never to waver. Help us never to surrender. Help us to go through with God until the job's done and he comes again or calls us home and may all of us who are here this morning faculty and students and friends who are listening over there may all of us today dedicate our lives anew to God and to the task to which thou hast called us help every student in this school to know he has his or her responsibility that as far as the measure of the influence of each student is concerned, that student has as much responsibility as the president of the school or the founder of the school 
or any member of the administration or any teacher in the school. Help us to know that this isn't a one man's job, it's everybody's job that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we never waver. We thank thee for giving us the grace and the courage to face the foe so far. And Lord, we call thee to witness to the integrity of our heart this morning. We've got 10,000 things wrong with us, but we've never pulled the flag down. And we've never run from the foe. Thou hast helped us to stand when it hasn't been easy to stand. And now, Lord, when it gets a little easier because you've been so good to us, help us to stand more firmly than ever and keep us faithful and true unto the end. We pray in thy name. Amen.